You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. When I was a kid, I played competitive soccer growing up, and I was on a team called the Arctic Knights, and our colors were red, white, and blue, and our logo was a little knight with uh, a lance sitting on the back of a polar bear. And my soccer team, I loved playing with the soccer team. Uh, We were kind of the fun team to be on. We joked around. We loved playing soccer and learning and growing in our skills, but we just had fun hanging out together. And we had a rival soccer team, and uh, that team was called the Renegades, and their colors were orange and black. And they were a lot more strict than we were. In fact, I remember the coach of the Renegades, if they tied or if they lost a soccer game, he would have them run sprints right afterwards in front of the other team as punishment. And remember, we were 12 or 13 years old at the time. And the reason why I share this is I remember on one occasion, it was the very first practice of a new soccer season and all of us were getting laced up with our cleats and we were getting ready we were, we were chatting about you know what we had done in the off season and talking about oh I'm so out of shape you know for, for the new season and then all of a sudden a boy named Steven walked up and started getting ready next to us and the reason why this is significant is because Steven was a renegade Steven played for the opposing soccer team and a hush went over all of us and you know I I think one of uh, us went over to our coach and said what's the deal like are we scrimmaging with the renegades did you forget to reserve the field why is Steven here and our coach simply said to us Steven is playing with us now Steven is now on our team and this was this moment of like an enemy has now joined our ranks and we didn't know quite what to do with that. And it was a really awkward first practice of the season. But as the season went on, Stephen actually ended up becoming one of my best friends on our soccer team. And the following season, his dad ended up coaching our team. And his dad was a phenomenal soccer coach. In fact, you know, he would host these Saturday morning brunch. And uh, his mom would uh, make breakfast for all the kids. And we would watch English Premier League soccer. And we would go and we'd scrimmage. And so anyways, it was this beautiful moment where what started out as what I'm calling an us versus them mindset, uh, the wall was torn down. The dividing line was removed, and we actually got to experience relationship with one another. The reason why I bring that up is because we have all experienced an us versus them mindset. Maybe you've had that experience being on a sports team and you had a rival team, or maybe even not being on a sports team, but perhaps you were a fan and you were repping your favorite you know, sports team logo on a shirt or a hat, and you walk into a restaurant, and you see someone repping the rival sports team, and you think, oh, you know, how could that person you know, even support those teams? Don't you know that player and this and that, right? But it's a lot more serious than even rival sports teams. We experience us versus them mindsets in our families at times, where you might have a deep divide or competition with your siblings. You can experience this in the church where sometimes we can become arrogant as a church and we view other churches uh, not as as collaborators in the Great Commission or collaborators for the kingdom, but as as competitors Or, or even in things as serious as racism, which is still very much at work in our world 
today full of stereotyping and prejudice and even violence. All of those things are manifestations of an us versus them mindset. And that's really what we're talking about today. And that mindset is as old as sin itself. And what we don't always quite realize is that the letter to the Ephesians is really addressing an us versus them mindset between the Jews and the Gentiles. And this division is a lot deeper than we sometimes imagine. In fact, R. Kent Hughes says this, a study of the history of the ancient world tells us that none of today's social distinctions, none of our racial barriers, our narrow nationalisms, our iron curtains are more exclusive or unrelenting than the separation between Jews and Gentiles in biblical times. Now, perhaps that's an overstatement, but I think he's really helping us get this idea that the Jew and Gentile division is a lot deeper than we sometimes realize. And if the Holy Spirit and the power of the gospel can in fact bring unity to the early church, which is full of these distinctions and these divisions, then there is yet hope for us today. And so that's my hope and my prayer for us is that we would be peacemakers, is that we would be people of reconciliation and we would be able to experience the unity that is available to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's go ahead and jump into our teaching text from Ephesians chapter two, starting in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentile, so he's addressing specifically the Gentiles, in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So here, what we see is the only command in the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians. Uh, What we see is this word, remember. Remember, for us, one of the problems in our us versus them mindset is we focus too much on them. We, we almost demonize our opponents. We demonize the other, the person who is not like us, and we think about their flaws, we think about their sins, and we start to judge them, and we, we start to self-justify and feel righteous about ourselves. And what Paul is really trying to get us to do is he's saying, why don't you stop thinking about them for a moment and focus on the us, Focus on your condition and specifically remember who you would be without Christ. I mean, think back to last week's teaching that salvation is this gift of God and it's by grace we are saved by faith, through faith. Uh, but if it wasn't for God's grace and the richness of his mercy and the greatness of God's love, we would all be in the same boat of sin. We would all be dead in our trespasses and sins. We would all be by nature children of of wrath. And so what Paul is trying to do is he's really trying to get us to, to, to take the focus off of them and back on us and to be humbled by our sinful condition. It reminds me of Jesus in John 8, 7, who says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone. I mean, if you're sinless, go ahead and you can throw a stone at this woman caught in adultery. But, but first of all, think about your own sins and it'll humble yourself or Jesus in Matthew 7, 3. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in 
your own eyes. See, Jesus consistently was dealing with the religious elites. He was dealing with these teachers of the law. And, and they, they felt very self-righteous because they followed all these laws. But what he's saying to them is consider your own sinfulness. Consider your own brokenness. And what that's going to actually do is it's going to give you compassion for someone who you would call them, for, for someone who, who is the other than Yourself. And here in the text, what we see is we see really kind of four differences between the Jews and the Gentiles. And I've had, I have them all start with the letter L. So if you're taking notes, four different L's that you really characterize these differences. The first one is different looks. You have, you have Greek and you have Hebrew. Greek versus Hebrew between the Jews and the Gentiles, what we don't always think about is we think about, you know, Judaism as a religion, but really, like, the Israelites is a people group, and there would be physical features, you know, both, you know, skin color, facial features, all of that uh, within the church. You could tell that person's a Jew and that person's uh, a Gentile, but there's even, like, clothing and other, you know, markers that you would visually be able to see looks, and we know this from the elementary school days. That if someone looks different than you, that's one of those things for us as humans. We automatically notice those things and we point, we, we highlight the differences and we make people feel like they are the other. The second thing is they had different laws, different worship styles. See, uh, the, the Gentiles formerly worshiped Artemis and the Jews would say they worshiped Yahweh, right? And the, the worship practices were very different. In fact, the worship of Artemis and some of, you know, even the mystic cults that they uh, would have been partaking in, there was like witchcraft and like sorcery and, you know, ritual prostitution. And there was this really despicable and detestable practices, whereas uh, Christians who were formerly Jews would say that they've been worshiping the true God all along. And they had, you know, their own practices that kept them pure and holy and set apart. So they had different laws. And those different laws weren't just in the context of their worship, but they actually had different lifestyles. You know, different lifestyles. You could say that the Gentiles were godless. I mean, Paul even says that. They were without God in the world. They were godless. Even though they had, you know, numerous gods that they worshiped, they were actually godless in their lifestyle. And the, the Jews would say they were very godly. You know, they had a higher ethic. They had higher morality. Whereas if you looked at the Gentiles, there was partying and drinking and sensuality and, you know, just all of these kind of things that would make, you know, Jews look down upon the Gentiles. And, and really what that led to is it led to different labels. And you see two of the labels, you know, you called the uncircumcision and us called the circumcision. You are Jews, you are Gentiles. And, and perhaps there was even hurtful name calling. I think about maybe in your life, the names that you've been called. Nobody likes being called Names. So we get called names like stupid or lazy or fat or ugly or an idiot or mean or a jerk, right? There's all these different names that we get called. And, and what can happen is our identity actually becomes wrapped up in our flaws and our failures and our shortcomings. And, and what this creates is all of these differences and these divides is it creates a wall, right? You call someone a name and then, and then they call you a name. And then all of a sudden, all of these divisions and, and, and someone highlights how, you know, you look different than them. And, and, and there's all of these different, you know, divides and, and divisions. And pretty soon what we have is in the context of our relationships with one another, we have a wall. 
we have a wall. And, and this wall is actually a barrier that makes it difficult in the future, as if it wasn't already hard enough to have a relationship with someone who's not like you. It makes it more difficult. to have. You, you're, you're, you feel like you're going against, against the grain or you're smacking against a wall to actually enter into relationship or have restoration or reconciliation with someone who's not like you. And, and we all know that in this world today, there are so many walls. There are so many barriers that are getting in the way of relationships with one another. Well, let's see what the gospel and what Jesus does with this wall as we continue in our text in Ephesians 2, verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. See, in the temple, in the second temple, uh, in Jerusalem, at this period in time when Paul is writing this, there was actually a wall. There was an actual wall. In fact, I'll, I'll show you a picture. Uh, you had the, uh, this picture is of a model of the temple, a recreation, because the temple was destroyed in AD 70. Uh, but this recreation shows there's this, this, this massive wall on the outside, but really there's a narrow, tiny four-foot fence that separates the outer court of the Gentiles from the inner courts where the Israelites could go. And Josephus, the Jewish historian Josephus, records that there were 13 inscriptions, you know, signs posted along this wall that warned Gentiles, you're not allowed to come close to the holy place. You're not allowed to come close to the presence of God. And in fact, two of these inscriptions uh, in archaeology has been, have been found. They've been discovered, and they're actually on display in museums. This is what one of the inscriptions says. So this is an ancient warning sign to the Gentiles. It says this, No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. So it was a, it was a offense punishable by death. Like imagine that, imagine feeling so much like an outsider that there's a literal wall preventing you from coming and worshiping God and there's signs on the wall that say you can't get close otherwise you'll be killed. And this was serious. We know this is serious because in Acts chapter 21, Paul, the apostle Paul who's writing this, is actually falsely accused for bringing a Gentile past that wall and he's actually arrested because of that. And so this is a serious thing in the ancient World, And we have to ask the question, what does Jesus want to do with these kinds of walls that prevent people both from coming into relationship with God and also coming into relationship with one another? Well, we see it there. He wants to destroy these walls. He wants to rip these walls apart. And he wants to take the names, the labels. He wants to take the stereotypes and the prejudice and the judgment and the hatred and the violence. And what Jesus does is he tears down the walls. He destroys, he demolishes the walls. I know today that word deconstruction is really a buzzword. You see a lot of people who grew up 
in the church. And honestly, it breaks my heart deconstructing their faith and they're picking apart the Bible and theology and all these kind of things. Well, the reality is the gospel is actually a deconstruction project, not a deconstruction of, you know, our, our theory of God or our deconstruction of theology or, or all of those different things. It's a deconstruction of the walls and the barriers that divide us from one another. And in fact, what, I wonder, what if people spent less time deconstructing theology and scripture and more time just allowing the gospel to deconstruct their own pride, to tear down their own pride, their own barriers that actually prevent them from coming into relationship with one another. So much so that Paul in Galatians 3.28 says this, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, it's not to say that those categories no longer exist because they do, right? There are people who were Greek and people who are Jewish. There are people who are male and female. He's not saying that those categories don't exist. What he's saying is if you're in Christ, your primary identity is found uh, as being a son or a daughter of God. You are not what you do. You are not the names that you've been called. You are not how you perform. You are not how you look. You are not your IQ. You are not your sexual identity. You are, your identity is found in who you are in Christ. Your, your primary identity is who you are in Christ. And so for us, we need to allow Jesus to tear down those walls that we have built these walls of hostility to keep people out of our lives and, and, and to keep people away from God. We need to allow God like a wrecking ball to come in and to destroy those walls. Well, another question that arises from this passage, these few verses specifically, is where Paul talks about uh, the fact that, that Christ has abolished the law. And for you, I know maybe for me, there's been times where I wonder, you know, are we still supposed to keep the Old Testament laws. You know, I know a lot of Christians wrestle with that and what exactly, you know, which laws carry over and which laws don't, especially where the words that Paul writes here in Ephesians 2 seem contradictory to what Jesus said himself in Matthew 5, 17, where he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So, so who is right? Is Paul right when he says Jesus has come to abolish the law? Or is Jesus right where he said, I have not come to abolish the law? Now, what we need to do is we need to make sure we, we do our study. And when we actually study and dig deeper into this, uh, we realize that Paul and Jesus are actually, even though the, the English translations both say abolish, that they're two different Greek words. And I think that helps nuance the point that each one of them are making in context. So in Ephesians 2, uh, the Greek word is katargeo, and it means to inactivate, to put to an end, or to abolish. So Jesus has put to an end the old covenant. That's true. He has ushered in a brand new covenant for us to live in. The word that Jesus uses in Matthew 5 is kataluo, which has more of a negative connotation of to overthrow, to subvert, or to destroy. And it's this idea. So when Jesus is saying, I have not come to, to subvert the law, I've come to fulfill it. Because remember, God gave the Old Testament law. God gave it for a time. And it was a temporary solution 
to this permanent problem of sin. But Jesus is saying, really, the law was pointing towards me and, and the new covenant that is made through my blood, through my death, burial, and resurrection. And so for clarity, the old covenant was a temporary solution to the permanent problem of sin. And Jesus is that permanent solution. He is the once and for all sacrifice. Uh, uh, New Testament scholar Clinton Arnold really summarizes it well like this. Hopefully this helps. Christ has abolished the law entirely. So the old covenant has come to an end, to be clear, specifically with regard to its function of regulating the covenant relationship. I'll talk about that in just a second. The era of the law has come to an end and a new era has begun. So, so the reality is for many Jews, they still might have this idea that the way that our relationship with God and we stay in a covenant with God is by keeping the law, by keeping all of these rules and all of these regulations. And what Paul is saying is saying, really, Jesus has abolished the law by fulfilling it, by him being the one who mediates our relationship with God. Remember what he just said in Ephesians 2 earlier in the chapter, that is by grace you have been saved through faith. It is, it's, it's not of your own work. It's not of your own keeping the, the laws or the commandments. It's not of your own righteousness, but we're all sinners saved by God's grace. And so for us, it's important to remember that the Old Testament is no longer binding. We are not under the Old Covenant. We're under a new covenant in Christ, but it is still valuable as instruction for living a godly life. Life. In fact, the word law, the Hebrew word law is Torah. It often refers to the first five books of the Old Testament. That word Torah can also be in, translated instruction or teaching. And so while the Old Covenant, we're, it no longer mediates our relationship with God, that is mediated through Christ, it's still valuable as teaching and instruction to know how to live a godly life. So hopefully that helps answer the question. And really, Jesus summarized the law by saying, love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And if we have those as our guiding principles, we're going to actually fulfill the law according to Jesus. Let's go ahead and finish off our teaching text in Ephesians 2, verse 17. And he, that's Jesus, came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being a cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is this beautiful picture here at the end of what, what Jesus does. He does not only tear down these walls, he's actually building us into something. He's doing something beautiful. But I would just say this to you today. Maybe you're at a place of pre-faith. You don't yet have a faith in Jesus and you've never responded to the good news of the gospel. I wanna invite you today to have access to God, to receive the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. And the only path to God is through Jesus. If you want access to God the Father, if you wanna be in right relationship with God, if you wanna be a part of this new humanity that Jesus is creating, the only way is by faith through Jesus. The good news of the gospel is it's not of your own work. 
It doesn't matter how bad you've been, how much sin is in your life, how far you've been from God. It's by grace that we are saved, but we must respond to the grace God is showing us with faith. That means trusting God with your life. That means Jesus, you, you, you trust Jesus to be the one who saves you. Your forgiveness is dependent on his sacrifice in your place on the cross, but you also follow him with your life. That trust means that he is now the leader of your life. And I would invite you today to pray a prayer and ask God to forgive your sin and to lead your life. And then to respond really with baptism. Baptism is the step that Jesus gave us to respond in putting our faith publicly in him. You can find out more about baptism at hillcityboise.org baptism. But we see a few, uh, a few application steps here in this last section. And the first one is for us to build your life on Christ. You might say, okay, I've given my life to Christ. What now? Well, now you continue to build your life on Christ. And, and what happens is if we are individually blocks, and that's the metaphor here, right? He, Paul has talked about a wall and, and Jesus tearing down those walls of hostility. But now he talks about you and me as blocks. And what he's saying is what Jesus actually does is he, he's, he's not just in the deconstruction uh, business. He's actually in the construction business. And he's in the business of, of building something. He's building the household of God. That's the title of uh, the sermon today. He's building the household of God. And all of a sudden, we don't have a wall. We have four walls built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And we really, with the, the cornerstone being Jesus Christ himself. And, and instead of a wall to keep people out, we have the household of God to invite people in so that people can experience the tangible presence of God. That's the beautiful thing. In fact, the word temple that he used here is naas, and that really refers to specifically not the temple as a whole, but the holy place of the temple, the sanctuary of the temple, where the very presence of God dwelled. And you remember that dividing wall, that four-foot-high four wall? There is no hope in the world for the Gentiles to ever go to the sanctuary for the Gentiles to ever experience the very presence of God. And what, what Paul is saying is that Jesus goes into the temple, he rips down that dividing wall, and he's inviting everyone in. And so this is really a beautiful vision for what God is calling you and me to be as the church, that the church is really intended to be the tangible presence of God in this world. And, and, and we should be people who actually clear the path to Jesus. That's, that's the next step for us in our lives. We should be people who actually play a role in, in tearing down those barriers and inviting people to come to know the good news of the gospel. Our worship gatherings, our groups, the times where we serve together, anytime we gather together, those should be moments where people see and experience God the most. See, the church should be the place where people experience God the most. And I just want to challenge you with this question. Are there walls that you have created that have actually prevented the people you know who are far from God from experiencing God? Are there walls that you have created? See, see we don't have, you know, a lot of those customary uh, regulations like, uh, like you can't eat, you know, pork or you have to, you know, do these kind of things that maybe the Jews had. But we have our own Christian subculture, don't we? You know, we have, you know, unspoken rules about you have to dress this way, you know, if you want to come to church. And now here at Hill City, we don't really have that, but some people still kind of have that mentality. You know, can't dr uh, smoke, can't drink. You have to have your life together. You, you have to make this much money. You have to look like me. You have to talk like me, right? We have these unspoken walls that we've created. 
And the challenge for us is not just to build your life on Jesus and have him be the one, you know, you're following his teachings, you're listening to his teachings, but then to clear the path to bring people to Jesus, that all of us, every disciple is called to make another disciple, to, to clear the road and for you to be a person who actually removes barriers and shows people who God is. And that brings us really to the last application stuff, the last practice is don't divide what God has united. Don't divide what God has united. Jesus, when he's speaking about marriage, say it says what God has joined together, let no man separate. Well, the church is one of the things that God has joined together. We are members one of another. And yet so many Christians are drawing these lines and they're using maybe laws that God has not made law. They're, they're making their own rules and regulations, or they're using labels, or they're looking at someone's lifestyle, and they're saying that person needs to become a little bit more perfect before they can be a part of my community. Maybe they're even using the looks, right? That person doesn't look like me. They don't talk like me, and so they can't be a part of our community. And I would just say to you, don't find yourself dividing what God is, is, is united, Don't be someone who is fighting uh, against the unity that the Holy Spirit is trying to create because this is a work of the Spirit to see a supernatural kind of unity. And the church will only truly shine God's light into this dark world as Jesus prayed for in John 17 when we are one, when we are united, when we truly embody what it means to be the household of God. Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.